0: So 1 Kings 21. Some time later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use as a vegetable garden, since it is close to my palace. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. But Naboth replied, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. So Ahab went home, sullen and angry because Naboth the Jezreelite had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and asked him, Why are you so sullen? Why won't you eat? He answered her, Because I said to Naboth the Jezreelite, sell me your vineyard, or if you prefer, I will give you another vineyard in its place. But he said, I will not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed his seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters, she wrote, proclaim a day of fasting, and seek Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seek two scoundrels opposite him, and have them testify that he has cursed both God and the king, then take him out, and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters she had written to them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Then two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against Naboth before the people, saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell you. He is no longer alive, but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard.
1: Amen. Okay, folks, we're going to pray. So let's just bow in prayer. Father, we want to thank you for your word. We uh, want to pray now that your spirit would take your word and uh, change our minds and change our hearts. Father, we pray for the kids next door that you'd be, uh, the gospel would be being, being planted in their minds and their hearts as well that would bear uh, much fruit into the future and we pray all of these things now in the precious name of jesus amen the quest for greater happiness tends to drive our priorities and our behavior and as australians we tend to be um, happier than most people in the world Uh, one study i read said that we ranked number 18th in the world in the happiness stakes and uh, that's because there's a whole stack of uh, Latin American people who are just much more happier than we are in any case, uh, who rank more highly than we Aussies do. But it makes sense that we'd be amongst the happiest people in the world. We've got a great climate. Uh, We don't have too many neighbours around us who are annoying us trying to invade our land, and uh, we're relatively well off. In fact, we're very well off by comparison. But the people who research these things tell us that uh, once a person has got enough money to cover the costs of their basic needs of uh, food, housing, clothing, and the other things which make life helpful, that uh, additional money that we earn uh, doesn't have the same incremental effect on our happiness. Uh, I mean, makes sense as well, doesn't it? I mean, if, if it were the case that more money resulted in more happiness, then how happy would our mining magnates be? How happy would our media moguls be? They would be ecstatic with happiness, but we know that they're not. It's not so. Once our basic needs are met, additional money incrementally does not improve our happiness by very much. We all know this, don't we? We all know this is true. And yet we still feel the desire for more things and for better things and for newer things uh, to be filling our lives. As if by filling our lives with luxuries that our desire to be happy or to be happier will somehow be met. Now, I think we most of us would know this experience. Uh, we may... Um, <clears throat> we may be content with the things which God has given us. We may be quite content with our house and our car and <clears throat> the holidays that we get to go on and so on until we see how other people are living and we get to uh, uh, check out their luxury houses and their late model cars and, uh, yeah. and our feelings begin to shift, don't they? Before, we felt content now we feel that life could somehow be more satisfying if only we had their house, their car, their holidays, their whatever. Now the Bible uh, has a few words which, which it uses to describe uh, this kind of thing, this craving that we have for, for things. Uh, words like greed and, and lust. One of the, uh, a word which I think is probably the most encompassing of all of the words that the Bible uses is the word covet. And that's an, that's an issue which really cuts to the very core of the, uh, of the 10 Commandments, and it's the one which is spelled out in uh, the commandment which we're gonna be looking at today which is the very last commandment. So you might wanna just open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, and uh, you'll find that on page 54. I'm going to read verse 17. Everyone got that? Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Okay, he goes. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. Ever had a desire to covet your neighbour's ox or donkey? Maybe his car, maybe his boat. The word covet basically means a a strong desire to possess something. And we sometimes use the word covet in a positive sense, don't we, to express something which is actually a good thing. For example, uh, it's very common for Christians to say that I covet your prayers. So I might say... I. I covet your prayers. I covet your prayers that I might be a godly and faithful pastor in this church. But in the Bible, the word is negative. And here in the commandment, it's not just about the desiring for more and more, in this kind of never-ending quest for satisfaction, uh, you know, chasing after the wind, as the author to the Ecclesiastes, of Ecclesiastes writes. The commandment here adds the uh, the extra dimension, and that is that the object of our desire, in fact, belongs to somebody else. And uh, it adds the dimension of the prospect that, uh, (coughs) by implication, (coughs) that we might actually take some actions in order to acquire that object that belongs to someone else, or that person. Now King Ahab was a man who had desires you might want to flip open to 1 Kings chapter 21. A little bit of Bible flipping today, friends. Uh, Sorry about that in one sense, but it's good for us to get familiar with various parts of the Bible. In 1 Kings chapter 21, King Ahab had a desire, and it was a desire for a vineyard. Uh, It was a vineyard which was very close to the king's palace. Now, you can imagine... Uh, by this stage of Israel's history, they've kind of not only occupied the land, but they've split the kingdom. And there's two kingdoms. There's a southern kingdom with its two tribes, and there's a northern kingdom with its ten tribes. And Ahab, he's a kingdom up in Samaria in the northern kingdom. And you can imagine Ahab, uh, he's been surveying the area around his palace, surveying the district, and he thinks to himself, what a lovely vineyard exactly what I need to, my, to add to my uh, real estate portfolio. So close to my palace. I bet it produces great wine. <clears throat> that would suit me very nicely. And so in verse 1, we're told, though, that the vineyard belonged to a man by the name of Naboth. But not content with what God had given him, Ahab coveted the vineyard and he made an offer Have a look at the offer in verse 2. Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use for a vegetable garden. Actually, I'll take back what I said about the wine. (laughs) He's looking at vegetables here. Vegetable garden. Since it is close to my palace, in exchange I will give you a better vineyard. Or if you prefer, I'll pay you whatever it's worth. Sounds like a good deal, doesn't it? It's very fair, very reasonable. Uh, problem was that Naboth wasn't interested you see this land was part of the land that God when they'd settled the land uh, in the uh, time of Joshua and afterwards that uh, God had allotted to the tribe that Naboth belonged to and to the family clan that he belonged to and uh, this was his ancestral land given by God you see that in verse 3 don't you Where Naboth replied, the Lord forbid, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Even though it was a good deal, he was actually putting God first. Now, that should have been the end of the story. But covetousness is different to the other sins that are dealt with in the Ten Commandments. Different in the sense that it's not an action. It's an attitude of the heart. But it's an attitude which gives birth to sinful actions. Ahab coveted Naboth's vineyard. For for Ahab it was, I want, I want, I want, I need, I must have, I can't do without it. But Naboth was not selling. Ahab was gutted. So, what did he do? Well, he went home, he lay on his bed, and he sobbed. He cried. <clears throat> Didn't even eat his dinner. Now, that tells you something, doesn't it? Ahab was so convinced that possessing this vineyard was so going to add to his happiness that when it was refused, he just couldn't deal with it. Now, it's just as well he had a very loving and very understanding wife, Jezebel. She knew how to deal with it. She'd grown up in a pagan king's house. Her dad was a king in another land and she'd grown up in a a context where she knew how to be tyrannical and so on. Uh, Jezebel knew how to deal with it. So she wrote some letters to the leaders of the town demanding that Naboth be arrested and put on trial uh, for the crime of cursing God and cursing the king. Because Jezebel so loved God and so loved her husband. The fact that someone would curse God or her husband was just terrible. These are both crimes which were punishable by death and when a criminal died their assets went to the crown. So that's the plan and that's exactly what happened. Uh, the elders of the town, they went in, took Naboth, they found some people who would say things about him, put him on trial, found him guilty, and put him to death. So we read in verse 16 when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and he went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. Now, friends, how many of the Ten Commandments have just been broken? How many? Well, how about uh, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor? How about you shall not misuse the name of the Lord? They'd done that, hadn't they? You know, this man has cursed God. How about that? Uh, How about you shall not murder? How about uh, you shall not steal? They've all been broken, haven't they? But what's the one command that lay at the very heart of it all? How about the command, you shall not covet? Covet. Which, which, of course, was the source, was the beginning. It was that attitude of the heart which led to the breaking of these other commandments. False testimony, misusing God's name, murder and theft. And we, we saw last week how it is that um, this attitude, this heart disposition, uh, when it uh, leads to actions, which is sinful, we saw that in the case of King David, didn't we? King David did not wake up one day and just say, oh, I think I'll go out and murder an innocent man today. No, 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 no. Uh, David didn't do that. That night on that balcony, not content with what God had given him, He coveted. What did he covet? He coveted his neighbour's wife. And the coveting led to adultery. And the adultery led to murder as he arranged the death of her husband Uriah to cover up his sin. But coveting doesn't just lead to breaches of the commandments, such as adultery and theft, and murder, and the like. When we turn to the New Testament, and indeed a passage that Peter alluded to in his prayer, if you come with me to 1 Timothy for a moment, to 1 Timothy chapter 6, which you'll find on page 841, listen to what um, Paul writes to, to Timothy as part of Paul's teaching Timothy and helping him to be a godly leader in the church. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10, Paul says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap And into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, Paul here, as I say, is writing to Timothy as Timothy is a leader of churches, a leader of Christians. And he speaks of people who want to get rich. Now, this is a similar word, uh, which is it's similar to the coveting word, but it's a word which is in other versions of the Bible is, is translated as to desire. Uh, it talks about people who are, have this attitude, this heart desire for more and more money, to get rich. And it's an attitude, it's a desire which leads to actions, actions which, uh, which cause great harm to the people themselves. And in the book of James, where, you know, told about the, the fighting and the squabbling and the, that people don't get what they're wanting because what they're wanting are the wrong things. And he talks about, uh, about coveting there. But here in this passage, what is the greatest harm that comes to people who are, who are coveting money, who are just wanting to get rich and rich? What is the greatest harm? Well, Paul says that some people have actually wandered from the faith. That's what's happened. The gospel of Jesus used to be at the very centre of their lives. God's forgiveness and salvation used to be at the heart of their identity. But now that position has been filled by another. Not by love of God, but by love of money. As if money will deliver them the joy and the happiness which they think that a relationship with the creator of the universe could not deliver. Friends, the Bible has another word to describe this kind of behaviour. And we actually see it on the passages that are, uh, that are listed for you, that are actually printed out for you on your, um, your bulletin sheet, which I don't have a copy of. Can someone grab one for me? would be helpful, if they could. Thanks uh, very much there, Joe. In Ephesians and in Colossians, now I've printed this out from the uh, English Standard Version, because I think it's actually more, um, it's closer to the original word than the NIV. The NIV uses the word greed and greedy rather than covetousness, but it's the word really for covetousness. It covers greed, of course. But have a look at what uh, Paul says in Ephesians 5. He says, But sexual immorality, having enunciated the gospel in the earlier part of Ephesians, this is now the outworking of the gospel in our lives, and he says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Uh, Who is the person who is covetous? They are the idolater. In Colossians, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is? Idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. To covet is to be an idolater. Uh, This is the very essence of covetousness. The essence of covetousness is idolatry. See, think about the first of the two commandments. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods but me, right? Remember that? that? Second of the commandments, you shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not be an idolater. What the Apostle Paul is saying here is that to break this very last commandment, then you might as well be breaking the first commandment and the second commandment because covetousness is idolatry. A man came up to Jesus one day and said, look, I've got a problem with my brother. Dad's died. He's left the inheritance. And my brother won't share it with me. You know, could you have a word with him? Sort it out. And Jesus basically says, look, I'll do one better than that. I'll give you some words of wisdom that'll be life for you. And this is what he says to the guy. He says to him, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Covetousness is idolatry because covetousness is, is saying the exact opposite to what Jesus is saying. Covetousness is saying that my life, that my meaning, that my happiness does depend on my possessions does depend on that, or that my life, my meaning, my happiness, it does depend on my career or my partner, who I'm married to, or whatever it is that occupies the place in my heart which rightfully belongs to my God. I was walking down the street in Sydney one day when I was approached by someone who was doing a survey on happiness. Now, I wasn't born yesterday, I've been around the block a few times, I know that he wasn't really doing a survey, he was trying to sell me something, so that's okay. Once you realise that they're trying to sell you something, you can happily go along with the survey, because basically I say to people, look, uh, you just before you, we proceed with the survey, I just want you to know that at the end of this conversation, I'm not going to be giving you any money, <laughs> or giving you my credit card details. So long as you know that, I'm happy to continue with the conversation. So we did the survey. Survey on happiness, and the questions were quite obviously designed to get me to express that I was not very fulfilled in life. And of course, this fella had the product that I needed that would give me that fulfillment. But he didn't get very far because by the end of the questions, my honest answers were saying to him that I am as fulfilled as I can ever be this side of heaven. (laughs) There's nothing that he can give me that's going to make me any more fulfilled than what I am. I was fulfilled not because life was cruising along trouble free, because it wasn't, quite clearly wasn't, but rather because fulfillment was then as it still is now because of the gospel. You know, as we've studied these commandments, we've seen that superficially, at least, that uh, we might be able to tick off some of the boxes and uh, and say, well, I've never actually murdered someone, so I can tick off that one. I've never actually stolen, so I can tick off that one. I've never actually committed adultery, so I can tick off that one. I I haven't actually set up a, a stone idol in the corner of my lounge room that I bow down and worship every morning. I haven't done that. although uh, you might have done some of those things. And then we all have to answer the question of whether we've done so in our hearts. And then we're confronted by this last commandment, which is, is all about the heart. It's about your heart. It's about my heart. For deep within us all is a heart which does not regard God as its highest goal, as our greatest good, and as our ultimate joy. This command exposes our idolatry. It exposes our guilt before God. It exposes the fact we've broken the first and the second commandments, let alone the rest. And it exposes, therefore, our need for a saviour. What is the secret of happiness and fulfilment in life? Well, how about being forgiven how about being reconciled with god how about living in a relationship with the one who flung stars into space how about an eternal inheritance how about living with god and with others who trust in jesus in a sin-free environment forever and ever and ever how about that pretty good isn't it Is there anything that you would swap it for? Friends, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, we've got it all. And when we grasp the enormity of that, what we experience is we experience the very opposite to covetousness. The opposite to covetousness is contentment. We experience contentment. Contentment and thankfulness for all of God all that God has done for us in Christ. Now certainly, we will work hard. We've got to live in this world. Uh, we will be people who, who study and who have jobs and earn incomes and will have assets because we need to work in order to pr- provide for those things in life which are necessary and which are helpful for life. We will work so that we can be generous towards others and we can help those who are less able to help themselves and so on. We will certainly work hard for the things which we need for for this life, but those things will not become our life. For our life is now hidden in Christ. Uh, We are now in the heavenlies with Christ. Our life is now bound up in Jesus. And all that he is and all that he's done for us and all that the future holds for us for all of eternity. You know, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 where Paul rejects this desire uh, to earn more money and to gain more and acquire more things in order to get happiness, uh, he rejects this idea of continually gaining the things of this world but he says that there is a gain. There is a gain that is rightfully appropriated to Christians. We do have a gain and it is because of Christ. And Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain. That's our gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into this world. And guess what, friends? We ain't taking anything out of this world either. And so Paul can go on to say if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that because we have Christ and all that he is. Now there's a great hymn which I'm probably not going to sing later on, but if we did, you'd appreciate it. It's a hymn which sums up the contentment that we have in Christ. It goes like this. It says, Lord, be my vision, supreme in my heart. Bid every rival give way and depart. You, my best thought in the day or the night, waking or sleeping, your presence, my light. And It goes on to say, I need no riches, nor man's empty praise. You, my inheritance, all of my days. All of your treasure to me you impart. High King of heaven, the first in my heart. And so friends, my question to you then, as we wrap up the Ten Commandments, it's exposed our guilt, it's exposed our need for a saviour. Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you really appreciated what he's done for you? Because it is because of that that we can now therefore with thankfulness reverse the process and we can place God as first in our hearts. So that the thing which we crave is not the things of this world, but we crave after God. As the deer pants for streams of living water, says the psalmist, so my heart longs after, after you, O oh Lord. We can do that because of what he's done for us in Christ. So let's pray, shall we? Father, we want to thank you for the fact that your word is so uh, insightful and incisive, that it uh, penetrates our minds and our hearts, that exposes the reality of our relationship with you and our need for Christ. We thank you for Christ, for all that he is for us. And we just pray that we'd be people who put him first in our hearts and uh, that we would not be like those who have wandered from the faith because they've forgotten who Christ is and what he's done for them and haven't really grasped that. Father, keep us firmly committed to Jesus all our days that uh, we might enjoy living with you forever and ever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.